0: Well, if you will, open with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Peter, chapter 1. I love singing those Christmas songs, but boy, some of them give me a hard time getting through them. <laughs> we were singing one last night, God Rest Ye Mary. And uh, we were singing it rather quickly, and the kids were not able to keep up. <laughs> <laughs> it was funny. We are, uh, as we are continuing uh, this season, making our way through the book of Second Peter. Again, we had uh, started Second Peter uh, a little bit before Advent, so decided just to continue working through it. Uh, we come now to the end of uh, chapter 1, and uh, we're going to be looking at a little bit bigger uh, of a passage and we have been looking at as we've been going through this book, uh, Second Peter chapter 1, and uh, we're looking this morning at verses 16 to 21. And um, really looking at the, the issue of uh, you know, what do we do when we come across, come across false teachings, uh, come across claims or, or, or objections to what the Bible teaches. When we want to know what the will of God is, when we want to know what's going to happen in the future, where do we go? We go to his word. So that's what we're going to look at this morning as we look at 2 Peter chapter 1, and again, we'll read together verse 16 uh, to 21. Peter writes here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, this is My beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let's go to the Lord again. Father, there are often things that we come across within the Christian life, matters of Christian doctrine, matters of decision making. There are times that we come across false teachings, and we have to make a decision on what we're going to do. And what your word teaches us that when we, when we make these decisions, when we decide to either receive a certain teaching, a new teaching, whatever it may be, or when we decide to make a particular ethical choice, we are to bring all of those decisions under the authority of the Word of God. You have given us your scriptures, and they are not merely the words of men. Men wrote them. Men proclaimed them. But they are not only the words of men. You teach us here and in a variety of places. But the word we have in our hands, the Old Testament and the New Testament, are your very words. Breathe out through the instruments of people you have raised up. And so to read your word, to hear your word, to submit ourselves to Holy Scripture is to submit ourselves to your very words. Will. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be a people who ultimately bring all of our lives in submission to all of Scripture. It is very often the case that the very first step towards apostasy is a compromise on the authority. And so, Lord, as we consider your word this morning, as we consider its authority, I do pray that you would place it in our minds and in our hearts to be a people who do not merely speak of your word as authoritative, but bring ourselves under it. And I ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you read through Scripture, one of the practices that uh, is often found in many places of Scripture, and that is also explicitly prohibited by Scripture, is the practice of divination. You probably read a little bit about divination before Divination in scripture and in ancient practices has many different forms, but it's basically where uh, people are using some sort of object, some thing in creation in order to divine, in order to uh, understand what the will of God is for their lives or uh, to be able to tell the future, to, to know what is to come in the future. One form of divination is called hydromancy. That's where someone uses water to tell fortunes. They believe that how the water moves or how it looks in a particular cup tells them something about their life, tells them something about the future. There's mention of this in Genesis 44, verse 5, when Joseph, while he was continuing to conceal his identity from his brothers, slips one of his cups into Benjamin's sack to frame him. And he told his steward to search his brother's sacks, knowing that Benjamin would have his cup And the steward was to say this when he found it. He was to say, is it not from this cup that my Lord drinks and by this that he practices divination? Now, there's a a bit of sarcasm that is here, but the reference there to the cup of divination is about the practice of hydromancy. It was something like reading tea leaves. Maybe you've heard of reading tea leaves before or um, reading tarot cards. Just something very, very similar to that. People believe that these objects gave them signs and indications about the will of God. And these practices, of course, were explicitly forbidden in Deuteronomy 18, verses 10 to 12. They're actually called abominations by the Lord. And they're one of the reasons that is stated explicitly uh, as as the reason why the Canaanites were being uh, removed from the land of Canaan. They, They practiced these things. They practiced divination. Although it's certainly the case that it's not as common a practice now as it was then, uh, though I would still say it, it's making a bit of a comeback, apparently, um, th- uh, there's still a soft form. There's still a sort of soft form of divination that many people do practice, even if they don't know they're actually practicing divination. People want to know the will of God, right? And so what do they do? They, they often, they look for signs, they look for things in creation to, to tell them what the will of God is. They they look for coincidences in their lives, or or maybe they they search within. They they listen to their feelings. You know what's their heart telling them, and what their heart is telling them is what God is telling them. They want to know truth, and so they pray and they they ask God or a God to show them the truth. And and then they start looking around again for some sign, something in the world, something in their experience to tell them this is the will of God. I remember it's probably the first couple of years I had been here. Uh, there were some people who had been attending for a little bit and I ended up meeting with them for membership classes and I was asking them, you know, what, what led you here? You know? uh, sometimes it's, uh, came across you on a website, came across you on Facebook or, you know, something like that. What, what, what led you here? And uh, I remember they, they, were t- they were telling me uh, the, the woman was driving down Cemetery Road one day. And she was coming around this curve uh, just, 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 just up the, the, at, at the end of the parking lot over here. And as she was coming around the curve, some, some car swerved at her and she had to swerve to 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 miss them and she almost wrecked her car but but thank heavens there was the parking lot she was able to swerve into the parking lot of of the church and this was a sign this was a sign that the lord was leading her here oh okay never heard that one before now, ended up meeting them with them a little bit uh, more, and uh, of course, some, some problems eventually began to, to arise, and though uh, there was an initial interpretation that this was a sign from the Holy Spirit that they were to be there, uh, be here as, as soon as we began talking about the gospel, we had the widely different understandings of the gospel. Um, so I guess the Holy Spirit wasn't uh, directing in the way that uh, maybe the signs were, were indicating. But, but people do that. They they, they look for for signs, coincidences, some event in their life, and that that tells them what the will of God is. Mormons are are also a good example of this kind of thing. Every time you meet with a Mormon, they'll tell you, the only thing you can do to know if the things that we're saying to you are true is to to ask God to, to show you. You need to read the Book of Mormon and then you need to go and and you need to pray and you need to ask the Lord, Lord, show me, are are these things true? And and of course, you're supposed to continue to ask if these things are true until he finally says, yes, it's true, until you get a a burning sensation in in your heart that lets you know this, this is the will of God, this is the word of God. Heaven forbid he ever actually says, no, (laughs) this is not the word of God. But that's what they do. They're, They're looking for some sort of internal sign to recognize what is true, what God has said. Now, this is a very, very different approach from what we find Peter saying in the passage that we've just read this morning. It's clear from the rest of the book of 2 Peter that one of the things that Peter is concerned about in this letter and that he's having to address is the presence of false teachers who are, among other things, denying the future coming of Christ and the day of judgment. Some of these teachers were likely already present among the believers feasting with the believers, and we know as well from Paul's letters that this is the same kind of false teaching that he's had to confront as well, a denial of the resurrection, a denial of the future return of Christ. Some of these people are likely present already, and of course we're told that they will come in the future. We read, for example, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 4, Peter warning there about scoffers who say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. There's no day of the Lord. There's no judgment to come. Christ will not come again. This is a myth. This is nothing more than sophistry. These were false doctrines that were being taught among Christians and that Peter had to address. And he he begins addressing these issues in our present passage. And it's important to notice here that as Peter addresses these things, he does not tell Christians In order to discern what is true, to look for signs. He's not telling them to search their feelings or to listen to their heart. He doesn't even tell them here to pray about it. Now, what does he point Christians to in this passage? As as Christians are faced with new teachings false teachings, as they have questions about what is to come in the future, what is it that Peter points them to to find their answers? He points them, very simply, to the Word of God. To the Scriptures. If God has spoken on a matter in His Word... We don't need to ask about it. We don't need to pray to him about what we are to believe on the matter. He's already answered in his word. Let me give you another example. If I was to come across somebody, which actually I did, funny story, who was reading tarot cards. Uh, This happened, actually, at Halloween. We had some people who brought some tarot cards to the church and they wanted to read tarot cards here. That's a whole other story. But if you were to come across somebody practicing divination right out front, would you have to pray to the Lord to figure out, is what they are doing right? Is this divination that is being practiced going to lead to true knowledge? Well, of course not. It's in the Word of God. Divination is explicitly forbidden. The Lord has spoken on the matter. What are we to do then when we are faced with some new practice or some false teaching. We don't have to, again, search within or even ask the Lord about it. We are simply to go to the Word and to examine these things in light of the Word. And we are to listen to it and to obey it. And this is essentially what Peter is saying here. How are we to discern whether or not what we are listening to is true or false? How are we to know what God is actually doing in the world and what is to come in the future? We go to the Word of God. And we see this argument of Peter expounded upon in in two ways in this passage. And I want to look at each of these. Basically, we can divide the passage into two parts. On the one hand, Peter is drawing our attention to what we might call now the New Testament. The apostolic witness. The authoritative apostolic testimony which is now contained for us in the New Testament. So on the one hand, we listen to the apostles as they have written to us the Word of God in the New Testament, and on the other, we look to the Old Testament. Two parts in this argument that he's making here. So let's look at each of these in turn. First, let's consider the New Testament. I think it's worth remembering, again, that Peter so far has been speaking about these glorious promises of the Gospel, the grace of God, the pursuit of godliness, and the ultimate end of all of these things in verse 11, which is entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And he wants Christians to remember all of these things. He wants them to remember and to recall his Teachings, those that are mentioned, of course, here in this letter, those that are mentioned in his first letter that he mentions, the teachings that they have heard from him, he wants them to remember even after he is gone. But some of these teachings are being opposed now, and they will be opposed in the future. Some people deny the resurrection. Some people deny the second coming of Christ. And so Peter here preempts these false teachings before expounding the matter further as the letter continues. And I want you to notice what he says beginning in verse 16. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. Again, he's, he's responding to the charges of the false teachers. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, when we preached to you about the coming of Christ, and specifically what we refer to now as the second coming of Christ. The fact that Jesus will return in power and glory to judge the living and the dead. This wasn't something, Peter says, we just made up. This wasn't some strange dream that we had and and then we sort of gave a a spiritual explanation to it. This wasn't a matter of speculation. Speculation. You know, we weren't telling you we have a message to deliver, and we hope you'll consider it as an interesting idea, as a possibility, uh, some some grand resurrection, spiritual or or physical. Just, Just consider this, please. Now, Peter and the apostles, as they proclaimed the gospel and proclaimed that Jesus had been exalted at the right hand of God, and that He and that it would be through Him that all men are judged, they were not proclaiming this as an idea or simply as a story. They weren't claiming that this was just some strange experience that they had and that they believe that the experience had something to do with Jesus and His return. No, the point He's making here is that they were proclaiming this as eyewitnesses. They saw Him. They were with Him throughout His whole ministry. They saw Him dead. They saw Him alive again. They saw Him exalted at the right hand of God, ascending on the clouds on high. They witnessed His miracles. They ate with Him after He had risen from the dead. Their claim is not that... we've got an idea. Their claim is that this is what we saw with our own eyes. They were declaring these things not on the basis of what they hoped might be true, but on the basis of having been with Jesus and having seen His glory. Peter here specifically mentions the transfiguration of Jesus in verses 17 to 18 he says for when when he that is jesus received honor and glory from god the father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory this is my beloved son with whom i am well pleased he is referring to that occasion recorded for us in matthew 17 when peter james and john were on the mountain with Jesus and suddenly He was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His garments were as white as light. They saw with their own eyes the blazing majesty of Jesus and His divine nature in all of its unveiled glory. And what does Peter say further Then, in verse 18 of this moment? He says, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter is contrasting myth-making and sophistry, making things up with bad arguments, with Fallacious reasoning and fables, he's contrasting this with the basis for the apostolic preaching, which is eyewitness testimony. And it's eyewitness testimony that does not rely even on a single individual making these claims, but on multiple witnesses. He says again, for we did not follow myths. We ourselves heard this voice. At a minimum, there are at least two other witnesses to the transfiguration, James and John. But even beyond the transfiguration, the whole gospel and all of the works of Christ And his resurrection is predicated on the eyewitness testimony of even more witnesses. Sometimes three, sometimes twelve. In the case of the resurrection, five hundred. These are witnesses also who in the first century you can go to. You can ask, did you see the risen Lord Jesus? And they could say, yes, 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 I saw him. And then they could say, and this person was with me. And then that person says, and that person was with me. And there's 500 of us who witnessed the resurrection of Christ. There was an identifiable body of people, numbering in the hundreds, that witnessed the resurrection of Christ. And if you came claiming that you had seen the risen Jesus and none of those people knew who you were, your testimony was incredible. So these were known witnesses, many of whom had seen all of Jesus's ministry, his works, his miracles, and chiefly his resurrection. This is to say that the whole gospel is predicated on the strongest evidence available. Corroborating witnesses. And Peter, by pointing to this corroborated apostolic witness, specifically here of the transfiguration, is making two points. One is that the evidence of Jesus' powerful coming again in the future is confirmed by what they saw and what they heard at the transfiguration. One of the the evidences that Jesus will return again is what they saw and what they heard on the mountain. They saw his majesty. They saw his glory Fully unveiled the radiance of his divine nature, which is what will be seen again when he returns in the future. He will not come at his second coming lowly in a manger. He will come as the conquering king in all of his divine glory. They saw that glory on the mountain. But they also heard something. They heard the voice of the Father say, This is my beloved Son. And the reference to Jesus as the Son, you'll remember, not only means that He's divine, but it also means that He's the promised Davidic Son. He's the King. He's the anointed Christ of Psalm 2, who, it is said, will break the nations with a rod of iron. So, because the apostles saw His majesty and heard from the Father that Jesus is the Son, the inference that He's coming again To break the nations with a rod of iron is what is being alluded to here. When they hear, this is my son, they're hearing, oh, that's the one who reigns over everyone. And so the transfiguration becomes, in essence, a type of what is to occur again in the future. And Peter goes on later to say that Christ will do this at the time that Peter calls specifically in 2 Peter 3, verse 10, the day of the Lord. The day will come when Jesus comes in his glory and in his conquering majesty. The other point that Peter is making here is that the apostolic witness is trustworthy because it is that of eyewitnesses. The apostolic testimony is trustworthy, again, because it is that of eyewitnesses. One of the things that makes the apostles authoritative is not just that Jesus granted them authority to preach and teach in His name, though that's part of it. And it's not just that He granted them authority to do the very works that he had been doing when he was with them. But another aspect of their authority, and indeed, that defining mark which sets them apart as apostles, is that they were eyewitnesses of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. And if you were a Christian in Peter's day, and you're trying to figure out, Who do I listen to? Do I listen to these teachers who are claiming to believe in Jesus, but are saying that there's no second coming? Or do I listen to the ones who say there is? The answer to that question would be, you listen to the ones who were with Jesus. Who knew Him who know him, who saw him, who were with him, those who were affiliated with Jesus, and that affiliation was known. You listen to the apostles. If you're a Christian today, the answer, of course, is still the same. It's just now in a different form. Right? We, we can't just sort of call up Peter and say, Hey, Peter. I need some clarity on this particular matter that has arisen. Now, Peter's dead. What do we have now? We have his writings. We have his witness written down. We have the witness of the uh, the other apostles written down for us in their writings, which is, for us, the New Testament. The New Testament is a collection of books and letters written either directly by an apostle or one who ministered alongside an apostle right like like Luke for example was with Paul in all of his ministry the new testament is an apostolic witness to Christ and the gospel And so if we have a question about the truthfulness or the falsehood of a particular matter related to the gospel and the teachings of Christ, we listen to the eyewitness testimony of the apostles by going to their writings, the New Testament. We listen to the word of God as revealed through his apostles, which is our ultimate authority. The norm that norms all other norms, that which we measure all truth against, against, or or claims to truth, we measure them against the Word. Now, Peter not only points to the apostolic witness as evidence for the coming of Christ, he also points us to the Old Testament. As Christians, we're, we're New Testament, Old Testament people. We're whole Bible people. Notice what he says beginning in verse 19. He says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Let me just stop there and clarify something here. The phrase more fully confirmed is a single word in the original language. It's the same word actually we find in chapter 1, verse 10, where Peter says there, he says, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling. The word is... An adjective there meaning sure or certain or trustworthy and in verse 19 it's describing what the prophetic word which is a reference to the old testament the prophets the the, the law and the prophets it's describing what the nature of the prophetic word is it's trustworthy it's sure it's certain. The ESV, I think, communicates the idea that the word here referring to the Old Testament, again, is made more sure as if it's sort of lacking some aspect of surety uh, before this, or as if it's more sure and more trustworthy than Peter's eyewitness testimony and and the testimony of the apostles. That's that's not what Peter's communicating here. He's not placing the apostles in sort of conflict with the Old Testament here. He is simply describing the prophetic word as a certain, trustworthy, sure word. So we might render it as the NET does. It says there, we possess the prophetic word as an altogether reliable thing. This is also what we have to go to, to listen to the Old Testament Scriptures. Peter is pointing to two things as equally authoritative. The apostolic witness, contained for us now in the New Testament, and the Old Testament Scriptures. And he says here of the latter that to them you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. The prophetic word the Scriptures of the Old Testament are to be listened to. We don't throw them out. We are in the New Covenant. We're New Covenant Christians. We don't jettison the Old Testament. That's not the model that the apostles ever gave to us. No, we, we listen to them. We certainly need to understand the relationship between them. Between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And the relationship between the law and the Gospel. But we never throw it out. That makes us ancient heretics. We were looking this morning at the doctrine of the Trinity and the many heresies that have come up over over the years. Well, this is an ancient heresy. It's called Marcionite. The Marcionite heresy. You throw the Old Testament out altogether. That's not what we do. We are to love and embrace the Old Testament and to read it as it is, as the prophetic word. And one of the things that we find from the Old Testament and that Peter has in mind specifically is that the Old Testament itself bears witness to the coming of Christ, particularly his second coming in judgment. We see this everywhere. We saw it especially, if you'll remember, in the book of Zephaniah, chapter 3 in particular. Zephaniah there spoke of the coming day of the Lord, where in the fire of God's jealousy, the whole earth will be consumed. A day of universal judgment is coming. And yet, this day of judgment also brings about for the people of God a day of salvation. It results, we read in chapter 3, verse 15 of Zephaniah, in the presence of the king, who is the Lord, dwelling with his people. Zephaniah 3, verse 15 says, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you, referring to the city of Zion. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear Evil. The Old Testament prophesied long ago that one of the works of Christ, the King, that is to be fulfilled is the judgment of the nations and the salvation of his people. And Peter is pointing us back to these scriptures. You want to know if Christ is coming? You've heard these teachers saying, this is a myth. These apostles are making these things up. Go to your Old Testament. Search the scriptures to see if these things are true. And you will find that they are indeed true and confirmed. He also tells us how long we are to pay attention to these scriptures. He says here, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now now this isn't here some sort of mystical statement, meaning that Jesus is going to just rise spiritually within your heart. That, of course, would be a denial of everything else Peter teaches about the resurrection. He's not spiritualizing it here. The day, you'll notice in this text, the day is a reference to the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. So when the day dawns, it means the day of judgment has arrived. But of course, for we who are believers, that day is not a day of wrath and judgment for us. It's a day we long for. It's a day that that we pray for to come quickly. The Apostle Paul, in fact, refers to Christians as those who love, who will love His appearing. We want Jesus to come and to return. So the morning star arising in the heart refers to our response to His coming, that day now arriving. There is not only for us, in other words, the objective reality of the coming of Christ, but the subjective response of the heart glorying in and worshiping him at his coming. And so the point that Peter is making is that we pay attention to all of the scriptures until that day. The Scriptures are our ultimate authority, our light, our guide, until the day when we behold Jesus face to face. At which point, the Scriptures will have served their purpose and now we will have the very Word of God Before us, something much better than the word written will be the word among us. But until that day arrives, we submit ourselves to Scripture and we pay attention to Scripture. Why? Well, this is what he goes on to explain in the remainder of the passage We pay attention to the Scriptures because they are not simply the words of men, but the words of the living God. Peter says, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. He is speaking here of the origins of Scripture. When Scripture is written, when the prophets wrote what they did, was it just a matter of interpretation? Had they had some strange vision, and then they just sort of made up what they thought that vision was about? People do that all the time. They have a dream what, what could that dream mean? I stumped my toe today. It must mean that something's going to break in my life. I mean, they just come up. They interpret the dream. That's not what the prophets are doing. That's certainly what the false prophets of the Old Testament were doing. Jeremiah chapter 14, verse 14. The Lord says there that the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. You know, people can do that, right? They can believe things so strongly that in their minds they've, they've convinced themselves, they've had a vision. It's a lie. It's the deceit of the mind. False prophets do that very thing. They make stuff up. Or they're deceived by some charismatic chaos swirling around in their own heads. But that is not the nature of biblical prophecy. It is not the nature of the Old Testament Scriptures which bear witness to things which actually take place and actually occur in history Things which God Himself actually revealed. The prophetic word, Peter says, is a matter of men speaking from God as they're carried along by the Holy Spirit. Or to use Paul's language, the scripture is God breathed. God was at work within His prophets in such a way that as they wrote and as they prophesied, the very Spirit of God was moving them to say exactly what the Lord wanted them to say. They didn't make it up. They didn't presume to speak when God had not spoken. God was at work within them. He moved them. He carried them. He preserved them from error. In the same way, for example, that the Spirit of God came upon people under the Old Covenant to build the tabernacle exactly how God wanted it built. So also, when the Spirit of God came upon the prophets, they prophesied every word exactly as God intended therefore, to read the Old Testament and to read the prophets is to read the very words of God. And since this is the case, friends, there is no higher authority than this. This is everything. This stands over everything else. There is nothing that is more pure Nothing that is more true. The Word of God is in a very real sense the truest truth. Because it originates from the One who is truth Himself. It has been preserved for us by divine providence. So that as we come to the Word of God and read these words, as we read the words of Peter, as we read the words of Isaiah, we are reading the very words of the living God himself. And so Peter's exhortation to us and our exhortation Uh, Uh, is the scripture to pay attention to them. They are our light. When I make a claim When someone else makes a claim, when some teacher out there on the internets makes a claim, we evaluate all of it in light of the Word of God. This is one of the chief reasons why we work through books of the Bible. We work through the arguments of Scripture. We work through the logic of Scripture. We want to think about the world and about God and about ourselves as God Himself thinks. And the only way we can do that is by getting into the Word and paying attention to every jot and tittle that we find there. So, for instance, my exhortation. As we are living our lives, as we are faced with a variety of teachings that are coming at us from every single direction, our call is to submit all of them to the New Testament, that authoritative, apostolic witness of the New Testament, and to the Old Testament Scriptures. And as we bring our lives in line with them, they become a light for us that will ultimately lead us to eternity with God in Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Well, Father, in Your grace, You have given us Your Word so that we do not have to go the way of pagans and bring out tarot cards and try to read the direction that the waters are flowing in or the wind is blowing. But You have given us a Word. That we can read, that we can listen to and, and hear you speak to us. You spoke long ago, you speak even now through your word. And so Father, I pray that we would be a people who submit ourselves to it, that we uphold that word as it ought to be upheld, as the very authoritative word of God, and that as we read it. We would be renewed and transformed by it, and we would bring our whole lives into conformity with it. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name.